Teacher Talk is an ongoing series of podcasts dedicated to exploring the world of English language teaching and teacher education. Teacher Talk is supported by Nile, Norwich Institute for Language Education. So, welcome to the podcast. Today we're talking to Phil Ball. Phil works mainly for the Federation of Basque Schools based in San Sebastián in Spain. He's a CLILS material writer and teacher trainer. He co-designed the CLIL Essentials course, online course for the British Council, and is lead tutor on the NAR Masters McClill course, or MA CLIL course. He is also co-author of the book Putting CLIL into Practice for Oxford University Press, and his CLIL textbook series for the Bass curriculum was nominated for the Elton's Innovation Award in 2016. Welcome, Phil. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Tony. Yeah, hi, Phil. Um, yeah, putting Clean into practice, one of my favourite books on Clear. Definitely. Um, so, a first question, Phil, what is Clear? Good question. That's a good question to start with, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you asked that 10, 20 years ago, then maybe the response would have been slightly different. Uh, uh, CLIL literally is Content Language Integrated Learning. That's what the acronym stands for. Uh, what it is, it's been subject to a variety of definitions over the years that it's been extant or existent. It, it, the, the acronym was uh, invented in 1995 by a guy called David Marsh, an Australian. He invented it in Finland. Uh, and he called it a, a dual a dual approach. So what he meant was that at the, at the time you were you were teaching content and language at the same time, or you were learning it. And that's the the L of the of the acronym. He called it a dual approach. But um, maybe maybe we could say that it's something easy to understand. I, I I liked particularly a quotation by Do Coyle, who was again one of the early founders of CLIL, and she said, I quote. Uh, till is learning to use languages and using languages to learn right. and actually that's such a wonderful quotation it's one of the best quotations in the history of education <laughs> so it's worth kind of knowing about till I'll repeat it if you like learning to use languages and using languages to learn and I, I think that's the best way of saying you know that's CLIL as so opposed to going on about definitions. So how did you get interested in CLIL or involved in CLIL? Well, I stumbled into it, as quite a lot of people did, but I, I stumbled into it around the time that the acronym was, had been uh, you know, created. I, in 19, 1997, I, went, I was working on what was then called content-based language, content-based materials in, uh, in the Basque Country, where I went in 1991. So CLIL was, if you like, a sort of branch of the general content-based uh, uh, paradigm, which itself in the States had come through from the task-based paradigm, and the task-based paradigm still exists, but, uh, Prabhu and people like that, and of course Willis. But uh, CLIL seemed to be something rather different, and I didn't know I was doing it <laughs> until I went to a conference in 1997 in Lancaster. It was one of the first conferences that sell CLIL conference, so I went, and I met David Marsh and various other people who you know, then became significant in that particular field but I was just working on content-based stuff and I, I remember saying oh I didn't know this was CLIL. <laughs> and what interested you? Well what interested me was the quotation I just gave okay. you and also I suppose I might have come through a slightly different route as a, as a teacher myself. I, uh, I trained uh, in the Jurassic period in the 1970s I trained in England as a, to teach in a comprehensive school in the north of England 
I taught English literature and language to native speakers and I did that for four years and I had a degree in a PGCE. I didn't come through the, the language teaching route, but I then went on an adventure to Peru. I went to South America in the early 80s and I worked in, a, in an immersion school in Lima, actually. And uh, that's where I started to think, something's wrong here. They were teaching the kids uh, as if they were Brits. They were teaching the kids as if they were native speakers. And I instinctively thought something's wrong. So I started tweaking the materials that I was given without telling the head of department. And <laughs> that was probably my first discovery of, you know, sure. before I met David Marsh and this acronym. Okay. So you've been training teachers with or in Quill for some time. Mm. What kind of concerns do you come across from teachers? And what are the typical concerns? Well, there are, yeah, it's an important question. The, maybe the concerns are changing slightly, but there are three, there are three things you, you can always say. There are, the concerns are uh, materials, training itself, the nature, and uh, language level. Those are the three big issues, I suppose, in, in training. And I, let's just take language level, because that's, that's often uh, something that, that's uh, controversial in Clil. Because there's more language flying around, the language in CLIL isn't as controlled as it is in ELT, for example, where you get your textbook which says pre-intermediate and the language is all measured nicely. In CLIL that doesn't happen, and so uh, teachers are often a little bit worried. Uh, if there's a teacher teaching history in Spain through English, that teacher will be worried about his or her level of English. Mm. It, it CLIL doesn't have to be done in English, it's, it's any language, but let's, let's take English. And they often say, my English, my level of English isn't good enough to, to teach with. And, you know, Italy, for example, has started some compulsory CLIL at 16 and they require their teachers to be C1 on the, the framework, etc., etc. I, I don't actually, uh, I don't, it doesn't actually bother me that much. I think that I'm much more concerned with, with methodology. It's very simple. If you have a teacher who is a, is a B1 but is very good methodologically, they'll work in a CLIL context. You can have a teacher who's a C2 and has no idea of methodology, and the CLIL won't work. So it's not really a matter of language level, it's a matter, it's a matter of methodological awareness. So that's how I start. If the Italians have made the mistake of trying to train their teachers first in language and then in CLIL, whereas they should be looping it, they should be trying to do them at the same time. So is, is that what you meant by the second concern, which was the training? The second concern is the training itself. Yeah, what what is the are there any standard you know parameters for cool training? And no, but they part of the reason why I wrote the book with Keith Kelly and John Clegg was we felt that it was parameters time in Clil. Yeah, that's another question. But so we said, well, look, you know, maybe that maybe training teachers in Clil needs needs these concerns, you know. I mean, there is a language concern. There is a certain minimum of level that you would need to feel confident enough to deliver material in a class, obviously, or to, to manage a class, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But, um, yeah, but it, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not my primary concern, let's say, in training. Uh, my primary concern in training is to say, right, you are, you are now going to be teaching uh, students who are not in their first language. You're going to be teaching subject, subject uh, material. I mean, that's how CLIL started. CLIL began as a support framework for subject teachers teaching through another language. It wasn't actually a language teaching paradigm originally. 
mm-hmm. that's been its development. Yeah. Okay. So the materials, are, but materials are also very scarce in Clill. Obviously, yeah. that's a problem. Well, maybe we'll come back to that yeah. point about materials. But in terms of then the training, yeah, what kind of approaches do you think work when it comes to training teachers? Clear? Yeah. Okay. Well, the the first thing you well. Let me just yeah, rewind there. The, there's a slight problem in the sense that when you talk about teacher training, you often talk about the experience or ab initio training, for example. You know, where are the teachers? But in CLIL, you're getting them from everywhere. You're getting them, them from all ages, all walks of life. You might have a teacher who's just come out of university and is starting CLIL. You might have a teacher who's been working for 35 years. Uh, that's quite also quite evident in the, on the Nile courses you have mm-hmm. yeah. massive range of people so you have a range to, of subjects a range of subjects as well and yeah. you've got you've got subject teachers you've got language teachers you've got experienced you've got inexperienced so you have to somehow uh, find a way to to uh, move them all forward um, what I usually say uh, is uh, what it, or one of my training principles is is you know just stop talking so much you know, you know, just as what, teachers or in the training session. As teachers, right? Because a lot of cultures that come to you uh, have uh, a lot of uh, Spanish culture, for example. In the the classic educational culture in Spain is that the good teacher is the teacher who can d- demonstrate his or her knowledge, mm, right. and that you'll find that still in a lot of countries. Sure. That's not going to work in CLIL. It's not necessary. What you need in CLIL is for the students to demonstrate their knowledge. So one of the first things I, I, I talk about is reducing teacher talk. Teacher talk's important, of course, but reducing it and making sure that that teacher talk is only used for certain purposes, you know. And I talk about salience of language, you know. If you've got a physics teacher who's going to teach you in English, you say, you don't have to, you don't have to talk about the technicalities of the passive voice. Mm. You simply have to make the key language salient. So th- those kind of things, you know, salience, stopping talking so much. And if you don't talk so much, what are they going to do, you know? How are you going to organise your class if you're not talking as much? And, and that, to me, comes back to the point you were making about the B1 teacher, that if they have, if they are a B1 teacher and they are reassured that they don't have to talk so much, then there's less pressure on their language or, or less mm. concern, or they have less mm. concern. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not suggesting that, you know, it's a free-for-all, linguistically speaking, um, but... There is a bit too much concern, I think, about some kind of pre-level that teachers should have for teaching. I mean, if you look at, I don't wish to be, I don't wish to sound condescending, but if you look in general at teachers, often in many countries, primary teachers, primary teachers don't, sometimes don't have the, the same linguistic level as secondary or teachers who teach at university, for example. But they often have uh, better methodology and because they've had to use it. Primary teachers... Mm-hmm. know that their students in a sense are linguistically deficient mm-hmm. whereas secondary teachers and bachelor teachers and teachers at university don't 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 approach their teaching from that point of view so so often secondary teachers can learn a lot from primary teachers even though those primary teachers don't have the same you know language level as them it's, it's a good good example of what you're saying so you're shifting the teachers in terms of their perspective on teaching and learning you're, you're trying, trying to make them see how to make their learners more active. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, and the, the, you know, the teacher who says, I, feel, I don't feel confident to teach CLIL in Basque or Spanish in my particular context. And, and I usually say to them, 
just don't talk so much. Mm. <laughs> you know. But it, of course, you're not abandoning them. If you say don't talk so much, they have to know, therefore, as you say, what are they going to do to replace that teacher talk? When I was talking to Jason prior to this about what we're going to talk about, one of the interesting things that he said was that you 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 don't possibly have a positive attitude towards micro-teaching or you're not so interested in micro-teaching as an approach to CLIL. No, I'm, not, I'm neither for or against it. I, I, it's probably just a kind of me thing. I, I, um, I mean, it depends on groups and it depends on situations. I, I think that sometimes micro-teaching... Uh, sometimes exposes people a little bit okay. in, in, in perhaps and perhaps and I, I might be contradicting myself there because they might be exposed linguistically uh, they might even be exposed methodologically and I, I just sometimes find that depends if that's at the end of a course sometimes there's nothing you can do about that you can't say oh god you know how can I help that person sure. re- recover their self-esteem after that thing might be the way you set it up I, I'm just a wee bit leery of it that's all I'm not I'm not against it as such yeah but you're saying you've got to be very careful about how you set it up and the kind of support that teachers might need and perhaps when it comes in the course yeah i'm very pro peer observation that's what i am very pro i mean you do observe your peers in a micro teaching situation but uh, one of the first things i say to <laughs> to language teachers language teachers are now part of the CLIL vortex as it were and they say you know how should i how should i start learning about CLIL phil and i say go and watch go and watch mm-hmm. subject teachers teach and I don't necessarily mean teaching in another language. Just just go and watch a physics teacher. But but I feel that that's something that doesn't happen often enough no. anywhere. No, it doesn't. You know, everybody can learn by, by watching, just sitting there and, and watching without giving any feedback, just yeah. for yourself. Absolutely. Reflection. Well, I'm being watched as well. But yeah, but, but, yeah absolutely. And, uh, and again, you come back to culture. There are certain cultures, mm. British culture is pretty good on peer observation. Spanish culture isn't. Mediterranean cultures in general aren't too keen on it mm. you know the, the, the classroom is a kind of private place a bit like the loo you don't go in you know <laughs> uh, and you little by little. well actually I was about to say clearly actually you've asked me about training I think that where clearly has taken off in Spain particularly uh, peer observation is becoming more commonplace and it's okay. because of clear okay. you know, it's one of the results actually and teachers are a bit more open right. to, to having people come in and watch them. I think so. I think like there's that. been a positive effect in that sense, yeah. yeah. They actually want people to come in and comment on them. And as, as Tony says, you know, you, whether you see something great or defective, you learn something. Yeah. I want to ask then about what I think is an important aspect of your work, the, this model, the three dimensions of content. Yeah. Um, and this is something that... Um, you know, you, you, you have a whole chapter about it in your book. Mm. Um, for me, it's a very important conceptual resource when I do clear training. Mm. So could you just talk us through the model, how you approach it, mm. and also why you think clear teachers need to know about this model and perhaps even use the model? Yeah, uh, I was doing it today, actually. And, and uh, again, yeah, you asked me about training. I, I, I usually... Again, use this as a sort of axis of it. It, it seem, tra- teachers seem to like it, you know. I noticed they did. Uh, one side, I stumbled on this again. I think you stumble on these things. I wouldn't wish to suggest I had suddenly invented this idea, you know. I, I stumbled upon it when I, I'd, I'd been asked to write a, a unit on the solar system, and um, 
when I, I wrote this uh, running dictation for these for these science teachers, and they hated it. This is back in two thousand and one. Running dictation tends to happen in language classes, not in science classes. You know. But they had to relate the planets to the text, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And when I wrote the teacher's guide, I noticed that that the choices that I had made uh, to teach the solar system had obviously come from my language background, if you like, and not, and not from my non-science background. And I noticed that there were there were three aspects to the content. There was the, there was the the conceptual content, the solar system. You know, they had to differentiate between the planets. There was the procedural content, which I saw was the because I'd imposed this running dictation, I noticed that you could find lots of ing, ing gerunds to learn the or to differentiate among the planets by uh, producing descriptions. If you speak to the by transcribing the person who's writing, by arriving at consensus, they've got to arrive at consensus which planets fit which text. I thought, hang on, this is another kind of content. You know, this is not this is not the conceptual content. This is this something. This is the how. So I, I proceeded, and then the linguistic content, of course, was was in a sense based on. Obviously, if you're going to talk about the solar system, the, the vocabulary will be about the planets, etc. But a lot of the language was also was also bound up by my procedural choice as a as a as a writer. And I thought, hey, you discovered something here. I like this, and I, I so I carried on with this idea. Also, if you look at the acronym. Content and language integrated learning, it's self explanatory. It makes a lot of sense. But if you look at it again, you think, actually, that doesn't make any sense at all. <laughs> because content always has language, and it, language has always had content. And so I thought, I'm, I'm not sure about this word content, and it's where there was a kind of schism in the clear world, you know, mm -hmm. and which partly resulted in the book I wrote for Oxford, but they were the people who'd come along with me in the schism, if you like. They, <laughs> they also liked this idea of three dimensions. There were the four C's people and the three the three dimensions people, but they've both contributed, I hope, to the world of Clill. But I thought that the, the three dimensions uh, were much clearer, in a sense, than the four C's, because the three dimensions were saying, what is content? I'm going to teach Clill, oh, content and language. What, 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 do you, what do you mean by content? Well, it's actually a much more complex and interesting word than it yeah. appears to be. It's not just 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. You know, It's actually also procedural. How are you teaching? What decisions as a teacher or a learner do you make to teach that conceptual content? So, so the procedural is also, I guess, what you're asking them to do with the content. Exactly, it's the how, and yeah. I've I also I've also noticed that when teachers take it on and they like this idea, they... What I talk about is turning the volume up and down. I mean, mm. if you think of a class, there's always conceptual, procedural, linguistic content at, mm. any, at any one moment. You know, even if people aren't speaking, there's something linguistic going on, you know, maybe paralinguistic or whatever. Mm. No. But what's interesting is watching, like in a mixing studio, it's, is a teacher decides, the physics teacher says, hey, let's just stop. We've been using lots of these used, by, we've been using lots of these things, we call these passives. The physics teacher doesn't have to say that, mm. but makes the teacher, uh, the students aware, and it, so he's turning up the volume, as it were, of the language dimension. But in, a lot of times in CLIL, the language dimension doesn't seem to be there. It doesn't seem to be that explicit. Mm. It's it's explicit all the time, I suppose, in a language class. But the other dimensions, where are they? You know, in language teaching. And it's one of those powerful things, as, as I said. I, I love the book from the beginning. And to me, one of the things I remember is that illustration 
of the sliders right. on that page. The analog and, studio. And then it helps you to go, okay, so yes, it's a model. And, and I, what I like about it is it's modeled in the real world. And yeah. I think that, that helps people to get a grip on it. Okay, it's got three sliders. What are the three sliders? I need to, I can adjust them. Mm. And then that can determine how my lesson proceeds. That's it. And, I, and I, when I observe quite a lot of teachers, and I think that the, you know, the most effective Tilt teachers I've seen seem to be, they seem to be aware of it themselves and or they're making their students aware of it, you know. But, you know look now, you know, we're talking about Newton's gravity principle here, but we've used lots of passives. <laughs> uh, that's good, you know, that's kind of language-enhanced subject teaching, you know, that, that mm. other acronym you could say, lest you could, you can throw in some more acronyms after CLIL, you know. So, yeah, exactly. Okay, so the awareness of adjusting these volume controls, that mm. seems to be a key characteristic then, perhaps, of CLIL. Do you think non-CLIL teachers would benefit from using the, the mixing de desk metaphor? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I, Exactly, I, I was about to say that uh, I, I don't think it's... I think that uh, when you teach in another language or you learn in another language, you... you you approach it differently. I think both the learner and the teacher. You know, if you accept the situation you've been put into, you know. uh, but what's interesting about CLIL is it does seem to impact back onto L1 practice. And there's absolutely no reason why uh, an L1 physics teacher should not do that as well. I mean, we're talking language across the curriculum here. And again, yeah. I would say in response to your question that where CLIL has been effective, that's happened. It's impacted back on the L1 teaching. And so, yeah, the three dimensions is, for me, extendable. I'd be very happy if people did, yeah. But would you say, therefore, that it would be advisable, it would be beneficial, if the language teachers had more of a content base to their lessons? Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's the CELT, that's the CELT, that's the <laughs> content-enhanced language teaching. Right. That's the CELT or CELT, yeah. Okay. Uh, precisely, because the... As I said before, the acronym originally, uh, CLIL was originally invented for subject teachers, really. It wasn't seen as a, particularly as a, as a language uh, paradigm. And then they invented this kind of hard CLIL, soft CLIL distinction, which is fine. But I, I actually think that the progress of CLIL, I don't like the distinction anymore. I think that language teachers, if they're going to do CLIL, should think like subject teachers and behave like subject teachers. Exactly. That's what I think. And so it, they, could, they can three-dimension it as well. I mean, the argument against that, perhaps from language teachers, is going to be that they're not subject teachers. They don't have the yeah. subject expertise. I mean, what would your response be? <laughs> yeah, you're right. I, I, there's only a certain, you know, there's only a certain depth, if you like, to which you can go as a language teacher. What, but what happens is, if you if you take your standard language teacher situation, you're given this book to use this year. I'm, I'm given this book by Macmillan to use this year at Upper Intermediate, and chapter one says, uh, whatever, you know, uh, pop stars, Britney Spears, chapter two, three days later says, uh, global warming or something, you know. Well, the very nature of that means that the language teacher doesn't have to go too far into it, because he's un he or her, he or she, He's only going to have to cope with three pages of. They're not going to have to go into the, the scientific depth, let's say, of global warming or even of pop stars. You know, mm -hmm. so so that's what tends to happen. So what happens with poor language teachers is that the only professional development they can possibly have is by going to IATFL and joining a SIG or whatever. Their, their professional development should consist of actually thinking of to respond to you, is to thinking of how they can deepen 
a little bit the content that they mm. they choose to work with. I mean, they can choose to work with it. I mean, uh, unless they they have it imposed on them. I mean, if they can use. I mean, I write materials for language teachers in cruel situations, so I guess they're either lucky or unlucky, depending on who you talk to. You know, <laughs> and it, it's designed for them. But you know. Uh, it's true that you wouldn't want a language teacher to walk into a 16-year-old class and teach Newtonian physics if they've got no idea. I, I'm not suggesting that. But but there's no reason why they should just have to do these kind of rather superficial, these rather superficial kind of uh, uh, ventures into content that language textbooks tend to tend okay. to do. You know, so that, they, that's enhance, a, they enhance the content, this is what you're suggesting? I think that they should, and, I should, and they the, can assess the content as and well. what is the benefit for the learner? Well, the benefit for the learner is the cognitive benefit, first of all, from the content. The other benefit is that the learner doesn't think, ah, I'm just talking about global warming in order to practice the second mm. conditional. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm doing it because we're actually interested in saving the planet. <laughs> and, and the teacher's interested, in my opinion, on this, yeah. this topic. And, you know, people talk about, you look at textbook blurb, don't they say, this is real content about real situations. What is it? You know. Uh, if you actually do involve people, if you deepen the content to some extent, yeah, I, I agree with you, you can't go too far if you're a language, but if you're prepared to go a little bit further, that becomes part of a language teacher's professional development. And I, again, I've seen this. It's been the case for me. You know, I've had to write units mm. about subjects that I'm not an expert in. So I actually learn stuff myself by writing this. But I think one of, the, one of the big things about the internet you know, is that it has bought all this content and access to content mm. that that is not necessarily very deep. You know, some people would criticize it for being high on entertainment and low on substance. Yeah. You know, so places like, you know, TED Talks or Reef Lectures or things like this. But but it is content that language teachers, I would argue, can can engage with yeah. and can engage the students with. But it, as you say, it's high on entertainment and low on substance. You know, I mean, do you want do you want to do you want to continue supporting a paradigm that's high on entertainment and low on substance? I, I personally don't think so. Okay. You know, that, that's that. Sorry, that's just my view. You know, right. and I, I agree that if you're, I, I don't think I don't think that's even the case in primary schools. You know, I think even in younger learners' education, you can engage them in a real way. You know, I mean, look at primary teachers; they tend to be they tend to be generalists anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, they they are often more effective little teachers for that reason. You know pre-training let's say you know as a default but hey that's just my view that's all right okay well let's go back a bit because you you said right at the start that you've been involved in CLIL pretty much since the start the um, mid-1990s yeah and I think you've you've spoken and talked about this this idea of three kind of phases to the the sort of history of CLIL yeah Um, so can you just remind us what these Mm. Ages or phases are <laughs> the ages of clear. Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting. It's been around. It's been around twenty five years now, and you know, there's still people saying, "What is clear?" You know, so that that's not their fault. It's the fault of the clearers, obviously. But yeah, I think that when when uh, David came out, Marsh came out with the uh, the acronym in ninety five. I think there was about a a, a kind of ten year period. Let's take it in. I think it was about ten years where people were kind of scrabbling around for parameters. You know, they they tended to be a pretty much uh, a bottom-up thing you know it was bottom-up initiatives in certain regions in certain countries uh, sometimes there was support sometimes there wasn't people and those people became the first cohorts if it worked you know they'd done this little thing and it had worked for them I was one of them I suppose you know and then so 
they came. It was around two thousand and seven, and then Marsh and wrote that book uh, called Uncovering Clill. That was probably the first mm. book. So I, that was a kind of interesting point. I think that was the second phase where they, the authors of the, that book, were trying to say, "Hey, let's let's kind of pin down some parameters here. You know, let's try and say what Clill consists of. What is it? Here's some examples of it." For those people who are the scrabbling around phase, if you like, in that, that first 10 years. And then on the back of that book, there were various books came out, you know, um, in, in a short period of time. So it was very different, you know, before you couldn't find anything about it. Uh, now there was lots of it. And so, if you like, that period after 2007 to about, know, about 2016, 17, maybe the next few years were competing views of Clill. And, and, and when you get those competing views, you inevitably get this kind of organic growth. You know, it starts to go in different directions. People start to say, I'm not sure about that. I think that's cool, da, da, da. And more people were taking it on as well. There, were, there, were, there was more stuff out there. And people started putting materials up on the internet. Mm-hmm. You know, you could find projects here, projects there. You could download stuff. Te- teachers were no longer alone. I, what I mean by that first period, the scrabbling around period, Second period, I think, was there was a sort of uh, exponential growth of stuff. The third period, I think, is now where where uh, I don't know what the frontier is between the second and third period, but I sense that Clill's moving into a, uh, into a different phase where it's beginning to hitch itself to competence frameworks. So competence education is becoming big now. So Clill again is, I think, a natural conduit for competences. I'm doing that on the course. Uh, there's competencies, you know, there's lots of other stuff hanging around, PBL, TBL, you've got phenomena-based learning project, but you've got all, PBL is about 15 different acronyms, meaning, so uh, people are starting to find, yeah, I know, yeah. Yeah, but you've got problem-based learning as well, oh, and you've got yeah. task-based, you've mm-hmm. got all these acronyms hanging around now, and everybody's sort of got this sudden, all these teachers have suddenly got this menu, they've got this smorgasbord of possibilities, mm. so Clill's just become one of them, so I think Clill is a major player, but I think it's realised that it's got to kind of go one way or the other. You know, the Gratz group, for example, are talking about Clill in a very different way now. They're saying Clill is just part of multilingual, uh, multilingual approaches. It's been a contributor, but... Yeah, this is the pluriliteracies. The pluriliteracies idea yeah. in the Gratz, yeah. And so it's going a different way. I, 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 I like the pluriliteracies idea, but I, I, I'm tending to go the kind of competence direction. So that, that's the kind of third phase you know uh, Del Coyle once said to me Del Coyle who was one of the the founders she said people will stop using the acronym CRIL when they don't need it anymore and that'll be a good that'll be a good that'll be a good sign you know she said CRIL she was one of the original gurus if you like she said, when it disappears it'll be a good sign which is an interesting thing to say mm. well it's still around mm. still around but I think it's you know as I say it's hitching itself to these or there or they themselves are hitching it to to Clill. So final final kind of question in in terms of that looking not necessarily into the future of, of Clill, but you you teach masters level students on the courses here. What kind of research would you like to see them doing as part of the the course or part mm. of their dissertations mm. with Clill? That's good. That's a nice question. Well, one of the things I didn't just mention there when you asked me about training, one of the immediate problems is that you could be training a language teacher in Quill or you could be training a subject teacher in Quill. And I think that the approaches in the end are different. I mean, you can do a course like I'm doing here at Nile now, which involves all of them. But in the end, ideally, you would split them off and say, okay, we're going to look at 
how you work with subject content, what is content, mm. uh, you see, see what I mean? So, so I think that uh, people doing high level work now, dissertations and stuff, could look at that. You know, they could, they could, a nice idea would be to, I'm going to look at a, a language teacher and a subject teacher, or a group of language. How do they approach Krill differently? You know? mm-hmm. and, 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 you know, that's a nice idea. We need more data on that, I think, because, again, the third phase, you asked me, I think the, f- the third phase is also characterized by including language teaching more. It, it wasn't really a part of Krill so much before although Clill obviously borrowed from language teaching methodology it had to you know, mm-hmm. there, was, there was nowhere to get it there's a book in there was a book in 2006 before Marsh with OUP which was called oh, yeah, Subject yeah. Teaching Your Subject teaching. Through English yeah, yeah. with uh, I think it was a Niall no it was um, it's an OUP book OUP book yeah yeah, yeah. Sheila Della was it yeah Sheila Della and somewhere mm-hmm. so that actually pre that predated it but that was the beginning, if you like, of the language teacher concern. So that, that would be one. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to know more about, you know, do students really, you know, do they really produce more language orally, let's say, than in a, in a standard, you know, ELT situation? Or mm-hmm. like, do they, what's the quality of the, of the language? I mean, there have been some studies on this. What's the quality of interaction in a CLIL class? In the in the target language, mm-hmm. I mean Dalton Puffer looked at that in Austria, but a long time ago. I think that that needs to be looked at again, right? Because the results there were quite negative. But you could say that that was Austria and not Clil, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, <laughs> that would be another thing to look at. I think is it, you know is are they really talking and are they really producing more? Are they producing accurately or whatever? Mm-hmm. Given the input. Those are good things to focus on. Okay. Well, I think we're going to finish off, Phil. But that was great. Thank you very, very thank much. Thank you, Phil. Thank you, thank you. No, great, great, great to talk. Good stuff. Okay, so we've just had a chat with Phil Ball about Clill. Indeed. So what's your first thought, Taney? Um, well, he challenged uh, some of the things that I do on, on, a, on a regular basis as, as part of teacher training. I challenged them in terms of not saying that they were wrong, but just getting me to think about them. One of them was the micro-teaching. I use micro-teaching a lot on the courses that I deliver because I believe it allows teachers to put the input into practice, put the ideas into practice, and start... Uh, start playing around with it and but the point that he makes which I think is a good one is that you need to think about when the micro teaching comes because often you put it at the end of the course so that people can make the most advantage or take the most advantage of the input but the danger is then that those people might struggle with it and leave with less confidence and you need to think about what support they have at the end of the course to make sure that they're leaving confident and uh, secure in what they're going to do next, so the, the next steps. He, he and I, I, I think he's right, he made the point of putting the emphasis in micro-teaching perhaps on peer review. Yeah, um, and the feedback as well, peer feedback. Peer feedback, yeah. So, I, yeah, I don't think he was saying don't do micro-teaching. No. I think he was just raising questions about how it's used within the training. Yeah, and when. Whether it should, and when, yeah. Um, so it's also thinking about the, the planning 
around that in terms of also building in the time for the peer feedback. I think that's a really important point there. Um, and perhaps also um, in terms of the way you um, you plan it, maybe, I mean, something that I'm keen on anyway in my training is to allow the micro-teaching to take place in, in pairs or even in, in triads, threes. Sure, sure. Um, that's one way of dealing with that sort of insecurity and um, confidence issue that, that feels raising, which is very important. And, and maybe just getting this to be seen as something that's ongoing, that you are not just doing micro-teaching on the course, but you, you make micro-teaching maybe part of what you want to do when you go back, that you discuss with you know other teachers about you know, doing sessions perhaps or, or 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 just getting people to observe you more more often you know informally asking people to to observe to come look at you or to observe them I, I've learned so much just from sitting in on other people's classes um, yeah absolutely what did you feel then about um, I mean, something he said as well about teachers' concerns about their language level mm. in terms of, be, you know, um, becoming clear teachers. Um, what did you think about that? Yeah, I'm, I'm always conscious as a native speaker of, of how little I understand about people's concerns about their language level because I, I don't necessarily have that concern. Um, although Phil, what, yeah, I mean, because Phil is saying what's more important is the methodology and mm, the mm. Um, subject knowledge. Yes, yes, um, and, and I do, I do really agree with that, and I have seen it in terms of teachers' effectiveness that you can have people who whose language is really very, very advanced. But because their methodology is not so up to date or, or maybe they're not considering the methodology, what ends up happening is that they're just talking forever. They're, they're talking, talking, talking. And point, Phil's point is really to make the content salient, so to, to make sure that it, it means something and it is relevant, and to stop talking so much and think about what talking the students are doing that you are providing them with opportunities to reflect, to feedback, to consider what you have said and maybe activities for them to do with what you've said. Yeah, and there's then the whole issue around scaffolding, mm. how, how the input from the teacher is is scaffolded or supported and guided, sure. how the student learner output is supported and sure. scaffolded. But one of, one of the interesting points that, that he made was also in terms of teacher training that very often teachers are kind of their, their language is developed and then their clear is developed because people believe that you need the language in order to teach the clear and his point was loop it you know do, do the language work within the clear work do the clear work within the language work and make it make it all fit together rather than sequential and, and hierarchical yeah, so that raises issues about implementation and, and professional development. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, the, the other thing that I thought was, was really interesting was this Celt or Celt 
idea of um, uh, content enhanced language teaching where you asked him about is is his three uh, levers three dimensions three dimensions content. sorry yeah. I'm just thinking of the the picture in the book uh, is it relevant to English language teachers and he was he was arguing yes that it makes it more engaging, more motivating when it has real content, when it has real mm. depth. I mean, I would argue that it's it goes even wider than that, that it, those dimensions are applicable to any um, teaching and learning context. Mm. Any, any learning involves those three dimensions of concepts, procedure and language. Sure. Um, even if you're learning through your mother tongue. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and 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 sometimes people get fixated on one of those and ignore the others. You know, they might, in my experience, t- teaching at university, often people get get fixated on the concepts and then don't really do that much with the concepts, such that they haven't really developed any awareness of. How to use it, how to evaluate it, how to apply, how to analyze it, because it's just it's the it's the concept. So, would you extend? Um, you know, Phil was quoting from Doe Coyle. Mm. It's a well-known quote. It's a great one. It's one that um, you know I refer to as well in the clear training that I give. Learning to use language and using language to learn. Mm. I mean, w- would you would you also? widen that you know say that that can be applied to any learning context i i was really impressed i i hadn't come across the 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 quote before maybe not consciously um and and i i love it as a as an idea that we are you know we're involved in these in these two things and they are mutually beneficial that it's not sequential it's not hierarchical it's it it it's together um i suppose the 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 thing that i a little bit uh was taken aback was when uh phil was talking about you know the the internet and and certain aspects of the internet being entertainment heavy and content light i i do feel that that often how the content is is communicated and 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 making it entertaining is something that you want to 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 do for the students um i'm not sure whether that's just my my bugbear whether that's related to the, the question you were asking but i think getting the students engaged with how you're delivering the the content is is really important as much as important as the content itself i don't know what do you think um <laughs> it's a bigger <laughs> yeah um well i guess we're going back to issues around approach and methodology aren't yeah. we yeah um it we've had a conversation with gavin as well gavin mm. dudeney about um you know the role of technology in mm. the language classroom mm. um, yeah I get I mean of course engage the, how you engage learners is going to be um, one of the, the challenges that a, any teacher has mm. Mm. Um, it, it was interesting that he was in 
in talking about his own development, he talked about tweaking the materials in, in his first high school and, and you know, not necessarily having that uh, understood by or, or seen by the, the people that he was working for. And, and I do think that this is, this is something that, that teachers should feel free to do is, uh, again, we had a conversation with, with Griselda and, and also with Claudia. This is a common theme of people feeling empowered to tweak the materials, change the materials, use materials from outside. Mm. And, and I, I think that, that that's a really important aspect. And I, and I do believe that, that content enhanced language teaching is, is a really important, important aspect. Yeah, I mean, Quill teachers, whether they like it or not, have to um, tweak the materials or even, you know, create their mm. own materials from mm. scratch because often um, th- they don't have anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. Well, interesting. Thanks very much.